Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alan Ben-Mir. Today's guest is Dr. Maha Hossein Aziz, an NYU professor, blogger, and consultant focused on global risk and prediction. In this episode, they discuss the global rise of nationalism, citizen-led movements, and the changing nature of global leadership. First of all, thank you, Maha, for taking the time. Not at all. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad you have your first book as a professor, did you say? Exactly. It's Uh, my first book. That's great. And I, you know, skimmed over, over this the book very, as you know, last, the last few minutes. Mm-hmm. It's definitely very interesting. I read also a couple of articles that you wrote. Right. And so much of it is intriguing. Um, I haven't been able to conclude as yet whether your takes is negative throughout, <laughs> <laughs> which it seems to be from the surface. Yes, I tend to be a little bit bleak. <laughs> uh, and... and um, my question to you is this, and, and you're rightfully raising all these questions, you know, about the, the you know, geopolitical crisis, uh, the political crisis, economic crisis, and basically using the word crisis mm. quite, a, quite a bit here. Yes. Uh, and I agree with you. I think we have, we just spoke briefly about a, a leadership crisis. Right. So there's all of this, to me, all of this is a, is a consequence. Mm of what is lacking today is a global leadership crisis. And Definitely. no matter what, where we look, which, whichever direction we look, there are no leaders of substance mm-hmm. who can make a difference. And I agree with you also that the trend is going, in fact, the other way around. Nationalism is on the rise. Dictatorship is on the rise mm-hmm. wherever we turn. And, and uh, violence is on the rise. Extremism right. is on the rise. From your perspective, having looked at all of this, mm-hmm. what do you think precipitating all of this? What's, what's behind it? I know it's a big it's question. A big question. Big yeah. question, but but they're related. Mm-hmm. Definitely, they are related. What is the common denominator behind it? I, or as you see it, sure. I think in terms of this decline of uh, democracy or this challenge to the political status quo. I, I feel that in in the last 10 years, we've seen that citizens have become more activists. They're more informed because of tech, and they've learned how to use it to, to uh, challenge government. Um, it's not just about the Arab Spring countries. We've seen citizen-led movements against governments in Africa, in Latin America, in parts of Asia, and certainly across Europe with the austerity protests. And here, for a while back, we had the Occupy movement and, of course, the reaction to Trump recurrently. So I think one, if we had to pinpoint one factor that facilitated this, uh, definitely social media has been, uh, uh, is definitely part of the, the Facilitated equation. the rise in the crisis in various places or the movement for more rights more equality, I think, better human rights, definitely. or is in both areas? I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, you could argue that a lot of these trends that we see today began around the time of the global economic crisis in 2008. And uh, that's when we started to see citizens, well, more bursts of citizen-led uh, unrest in, in certain parts of the world. And we're perhaps just seeing the... Uh, the uh, evolution of that frustration, the economic frustration. If you factor in the challenges, the recurrent challenges 
to globalization. Uh, as everyone knows, since 1999, um, there have been bursts of citizen-led movements, uh, people who feel they've been left behind by globalization. But now you see that there's a growing class of people who um, feel that they're, they have no occupational identity. Uh, there's a, uh, an economist called uh, Guy Standing who's come up with this at SOAS uh, back in London. And uh, he's created, he, he came up with this term called the precariat. It's a class of people around the world who have been left behind by globalization, but have also been impacted by the global unemployment crisis of recent years. And I imagine with the looming cloud of automation which will lead to unemployment, there are going to be more people who are feeling left behind. And I I would argue if you look around the world today, most governments are not prepared for this uh, looming cloud of automation-related unemployment. Jobs will be taken away due to robots. And uh, I think there's potential for more unrest rooted in economic concerns, lack of employment, uh, uh, lack of uh, mobi- upward mobility, and I, again, I, I just don't see any government uh, today that really is in tune with that. There are too many more near-term risks mm-hmm. that they're uh, trying to uh, tackle that they're not really equipped to, to think more long-term and prepare us for what's coming. Uh, I'm encouraged by the fact that there's one presidential candidate here in the U.S. Uh, named Andrew Yang. So he's actually picked up on the fact that uh, jobs will be wiped away because of, uh, he says, I believe up to 40% will be wiped away in the next four years. But you see, this is where I personally disagree. Mm. Because if you look at the United States today, you can can easily argue that the United States, from a technological perspective, is one of the most advanced countries. At least one of the top five. But then we have practically zero unemployment. Mm. So there's not necessarily a correlation between advanced technology and the level of employed people or unemployed people. It goes, in my view, it goes, it goes to management, that is, mm. the various governments who are now where you are absolutely correct to suggest there is 30% unemployed, 25% yeah. among the youth in some countries, mm-hmm. 40 to 50%. Yeah. Egypt is one, Turkey, even Spain, Spain and all of that. Yeah. It is not because their new technology is taking over and people are left, no. are left behind, but because the government is mismanaging the economy and mismanaging the progress and how to compensate. Mm-hmm. And that is what is really missing. How to compensate for the new technology that is taken in one hand jobs. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the same the same advanced technology could also produce right. a new job. And this is it the could. battle today in mm-hmm. the United States, for example, concerning energy. Say, right. well, the fossil oil or the company that, you know, sells the gas and, and, and uh, fossil oil, fossil, they're saying, well, if you stop this, we're going to have, there'll be tens of thousands, millions will be unemployed. Right. They're saying, well, wait a minute, you can take these millions of people mm-hmm. and have them work on developing a new sources of energy, you know, right. sun, sun uh, uh, roofs, you know, all this wind energy, exactly. walk from the water, from the sun, all of that. Right. So that's the notion that the two are necessarily 
impact, it is the mismanagement of the various governments. Agreed, you know, agreed. Another point I want to, mm-hmm. what I must like to mention to you, because you, and you're again right, democracy throughout the world is being, you know, many leaders are chipping away. Yeah. Uh, be that in Israel, be that in Turkey, be that in Russia, be that here, even mm-hmm. in the United States, which has been unheard of, what the Trump is doing. Definitely. In the same talking, when you are also correct to suggest, there is a movement, you know, the Arab Spring is, is a good example. There is yearning by the youth. Definitely. All over the world mm-hmm. are saying enough is enough. Yep. And the social media here too, contributing on the one hand to the desire, the yearning for more freedom, for, for better opportunities, for right. better future. And then you have the same social media is also used by extremists yes. who are actually pushing in a different direction. The question, you know, perhaps you can elaborate, I'm sure you can, you know, where do we, how do you strike a balance? Is there a balance? Is there anything, what can we do? Mm-hmm. What can we do? We have this tool, this is a course of social media, which sure. can be used for evil <laughs> or for good. Yeah, exactly. same time. <laughs> mm. It's I I exactly I, I completely agree with everything you've said, and it's a tough question. I I don't think anyone at this stage has a solution for how we can stop uh, hate speech and extremist groups from being used, but you know, uh, being promoted on social media. It's it's a challenge. I've been to a lot of conferences in the last year uh, on democracy and a lot of the movements that we see today. And the response is typically the same, that we're doing our best. This is Facebook. We're doing our best to remove all hate speech. We'll try harder. I'm not, I don't know what the solution is, but I think if we take a step back and we recognize that there's clearly a growing strain of extremism that goes beyond Islamist extremism. It's now far-right extremism, as we've seen most recently mm-hmm. in New yeah. Zealand, and yeah. then, of course, the major attack on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. Yeah. But if you look around the world, there's also concern about uh, Hindu extremism in South Asia, Buddhist extremism in parts of Southern Asia, Sri Lanka, Myanmar. And I think what we have to reflect on is whether we are at a crossroads in terms of our global values. Uh, Post-Cold War, as, as, as you know, it seemed as though the U.S. had a certain role in the world to promote democracy, human rights. Those were global values that the international community was supposed to pursue in their own and countries. Right, yeah. yeah. And I think with, with, with respect to President Trump and the, the new role for the U.S., in the world today, I'm not sure how to describe it, but uh, <laughs> it does not seem as there, though there's a <clears throat> a country anywhere that's taking that role to help guide us along with values. And it, in my from my perspective, it's it looks like some kind of global identity crisis, where the the narrative of the extremists and xenoph- those who are xenophobic is stronger you know, is stronger than any other voice. And that is a problem. And I yeah. I don't know if it falls on youth to take a larger role. We've already seen, as you said, you know, they're very more, they're much more activists around the world. And the most recent example I can think about is the uh, youth-led movement across Europe, where they're uh, led by the 16-year-old Swedish girl. Uh, to They're challenging governments 
to they're going on strike and they're challenging governments to do something about climate change rightly so yeah. uh-huh. what if there was a movement a global movement maybe led by youth maybe led by defectors of ISIS al qaeda and other extremist groups to uh, counter the the narrative the ideology of these extremists or maybe religious leaders could take a larger role in promoting uh, you know this counter narrative to extremist ideology i don't feel at this point in time that any government is truly going to be in any position to do anything about it i was encouraged by uh, new zealand prime minister jacinda ardern's uh, pledge to launch a global campaign against hate and extremism after the attacks the devastating attacks in uh, new zealand let's see if other countries you know jump on that bandwagon does new zealand have the legitimacy does she have as leader uh, as a leader have the legitimacy to rally other countries well, i don't know the new zealand unfortunately is too small yeah exactly and, and, uh, when it comes to any kind of statistic it's minuscule exactly. population wide size wise all of that but any small country however small could set an example mm-hmm. uh, i just want to go back to what you said about the united states and this is this is incidentally i mean well you know it's a discussion today it's ongoing to what extent trump has caused the damage right. how much is how much is it reversible how much is it is irreversible right. and how do you compare say the united states say, to china or to sure. or to russia will 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 his will, what he's doing now is uh, um, going in fact to change the the leadership role of the united states for the law in the long term right i personally don't think don't think that is it is all lost already right only two years after trump, trump being in office and there are some reasons for it and from as i see it there's not a single other country be that china or russia mm. or turkey or any other dem- even a democracy almost anywhere that have solid constitution solid constitution no matter how you challenge it mm. whatever means you challenge the constitution and however you come very close to the border of breaking the laws the constitution still holds and there is accountability in one form or another that's one reason sure. second reason is that there is constraint on how many times you can be a president <laughs> so it's going to be another 6 years maximum mm. hopefully only two maybe right. hopefully before that <laughs> so that's that's, a, that's another yeah. reason. Right. The, the the third reason is uh, America power, you know, soft power, economic power, military mm. power. Sure. And it's uh, it's a stands um, in the international in terms of presence, American presence today is still in over 100 different countries, military and otherwise. Sure. So the magnitude mm. of the United States is as such we are at a setback we are experiencing right. a serious setback but there is no real power today or for the next 10 or 15 years right that can in fact replace the united states in terms of leadership role the question here is the 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 moral leadership mm-hmm. yeah this is what concerns me the, the concern me the most for example take obama not just not just uh, mm-hmm. trump right obama in my view made a horrifying mistake by allowing the Syrian civil war mm. to go for as long as it has and basically he looked the other way 600 700,000 people dying the country mm. is being ruined so it's not just a trump 
Definitely. The question from I would like ask to mm-hmm. ask you now. There seem to be going actually back to two thousand and three. Did we? What about what is our business to go to Iraq and change the regime? Right. Share? Why are we so concerned about changing regime necessarily in Iraq? Why are we seventeen years later still in Afghanistan? Right. So notwithstanding the advantages that the United States enjoys all along in so many spheres, we have been making horrifying mistakes mm-hmm. going back the last two decades, right. basically. So the question is, not how much of this is reversible, given right. our reality. How much of it do you think is is not reversible? Mm. Because you're talking about the future. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And you're talking about global leadership. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, how do you see that? Well, I I agree with much of what you said. I think we can't put all the blame on President Trump. I think there have been a lot of mistakes, as you pointed out, with respect to foreign policy. Uh, Other countries, other communities around the world have, have questioned the legitimacy of the U.S. as a global superpower for many years and many decades, in fact. And I think if we look to academic uh, literature and uh, the work of analysts, perhaps since 2008, there's been more and more discussion about how this is a multipolar world, that the U.S. is, uh, uh, you know, it's not necessarily what it was in the early years after the after the Cold War. So I agree that it's it's definitely this has been de- building for a while, and uh, the instinct is to assume that the world will now be defined by U.S. versus China. And there's an interesting book I was reading by Kai Fu Li. Um, he's an AI expert, and he says that uh, actually China and U.S. are pretty close in terms of their uh, tech technological uh, you know, capability, and he predicts that China will overtake uh, the U.S. Uh, in the next 15 years. Uh, then you have others who speculate that the future is Asian. <laughs> that, well, uh, there's no question. I mean, Asia, Asia is, of course, is on the rise. Exactly. Um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, as to whether China, in fact, overtake the United mm. States from a technological perspective, um, it's possible, right? But in my view, uh, the United States is still by far in the lead when I it think comes so. to technological advancement. And however advanced the Chinese may be, the United States is not sitting, yeah, sitting waiting. Uh, we continue to advance technology. And so, uh, you know, a lot of speculation exactly. like China will overtake the United States economically. It's again a pipe dream, at least for the time being. Exactly. Or militarily, still pipe dream. There's no, absolutely no comparison. Mm-hmm. All of Europe put together, plus China, plus Russia, and yeah. you look at their budget, defense budget, sure. it's less than half mm. of the budget of the United of the US, States of for course. the military alone. So people talk in generalities. I think they don't understand the magnitude and the power of this country. I think that it's safe to say, at the moment anyway, we can all agree that the U.S. leadership wants to take a different role in the world, right? I I think we've heard a number of times that President Trump doesn't feel responsible for the rest of the world. Um, But I, I think the era of a U.S. hegemony in what in the way that it existed in those early years after the Cold War is over. Perhaps we can look at it more as a post-hegemonic system where it's definitely not the the U.S. that's in charge of every issue or involved with every issue, but we also see the rise of other superpowers, other regions that are taking a more dominant role. 
many people argue that the future is African, right? Because I believe 40%, one in four individuals in the world will be African, I think by 2030, or there, there are a lot of statistics. It could be Asian, it could be Asian too. It could be Asian Between too. Japan, yeah. China, Malaysia. <laughs> exactly. I think in the next few, uh, at the very least in the next few years, we know that there will be no consensus on who's in charge. And well, I think, and I don't think there is. They will be in charge. I mean, mm. I I speak about the United States uh, in terms of leadership role, but there's no doubt. You know, mm. multilateralism is is, uh, is exactly. the future, and the United States, notwithstanding its prowess in all in all areas, still has to depend on has alliances, of course, uh, be that in Europe and elsewhere in the Middle East, and it cannot take unilateral decisions on a regular basis. Only in the cases of emergency, it can't take a unilateral decision, but there are lies to be, to, to be consulted. And as long as the United States need to consult, nevertheless, in spite of its sure. unique position. So the alliances remain necessary, right. uh, multilateralism remain necessary, albeit you have a power that could lead uh, these. Let me, let me just shift gears for a little bit about the Arab Spring, just for a few minutes. Uh, you talked about it. I'm sure you wrote about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a different view of what is going to be, say, five, six, ten years down the line. <laughs> but as of now, did you, can you pass the judgment that our spring failed? I think I would have to agree with most people that we haven't received, we haven't earned the, the results that we hoped. Uh, most of the countries there are either uh, worse off or the day-to-day situation for the average person is not better. So in that regard, I would say they have they didn't get what they fought for, which is very, very disappointing. But um, again, the Arab Spring exists in a backdrop, a world where most citizens are frustrated. Um, and I, I don't see that, that changing anytime soon unless suddenly there is, a, uh, all governments regain legitimacy and, are able to provide basic public goods. Um, so I don't predict anything too positive in that regard in the coming, coming Are you talking years. specifically in the Arab world, Muslim world? The Arab world. Well, I, I would argue in some in some ways you, you could say that in the U.S. and in parts of Europe that there's more uncertainty there. Um, what we're seeing here with respect to Trump and the movements against him and um, and across the pond in London with respect to Brexit... Uh, I'm not sure these countries are necessarily. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure the governments there are, are recognizing the shift that's happening. Whereas in some emerging markets, um, they're used to the chaos. They're used to the ch- recurrent challenge to the status quo. But just going back to the Arab Spring, you know, the total sum of it when you look at it, what sort of imprint has left? And some of these imprints are positive, negative, mm-hmm. or in between. Because something happened. Yes. When we can say as if nothing happened. Even if we, and I agree with you, the results are not mm. necessarily, uh, there was no happy ending right. so far. But the Arab Spring in and of itself has taken place and has left behind certain footprints. Mm-hmm. Are all these footprints negative or there is something still positive in these mm. footprints? I think it's it shows that uh, youth can create some change if they want to uh, armed with tech they are in a position to 
bring down dictators, bring down leaders, and challenge the governments. The problem is the security situation in most of these countries is so unpredictable. Um, I think I'm not sure that can be, uh, I'm not sure day to day that can be renewed in a way that would be to the benefit of these people. So it's But tough. I mean, again, you know, as I see it, even though it's failed in Egypt, failed in Libya, failed in Syria, failed just about everywhere. Mm. Maybe with a little exception of Tunisia. Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the imprint, as I see mm. it, I've been, I've been maintaining that the Arab Spring is not dead. Mm. That is, it has left an imprint. That sure. is, the youth have not forgotten. Mm. Um, the way the government approached it was a disaster. Mm. And the way the foreign power, specifically the United States and the, and the the leading three, four countries in Europe, Britain, France, uh, also been terribly misguided in terms of what to do in order to yeah. assist these countries actually move into some form of democratic form of government. Mm. Basically, they shut down their throat yeah. a concept, a democracy, you know, you do it mm. as if this is panacea, and it did not work. But I think it did leave uh, uh, the, the, the one positive footprint to the young. Mm that the power rests in our hands. Definitely. And, and I think um, in one form or another, there will be a new wave of the Arab Spring. It's a question mm. of only when. Mm. Because exactly what you're saying, frustrating, frustration is high just about everywhere. Right. Uh, disenchantment, unhappiness mm. with government, with the social conditions, unemployment, poverty, exactly. all of these things, just the world over in one form or another is really creating an atmosphere, is a poisoning the atmosphere. But the social media in this regard has made us more naked society in the sense mm-hmm. that I can be in a, sitting in a tent somewhere in Africa and I still see what's going on in New York City. Exactly. So uh, one last thing I want to just talk, talk to me about, about um, your book. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we spoke a lot about what the content of your right. book. But in particular, what is your what is your um, message? <laughs> I I think the basic message of my book and of my work generally is that uh, we're not going to have clarity on a lot of these major issues with regards to leadership in the world, with regards to whether there's a, a better political system ahead of us after democracy, which is being debated currently. We're not going to have a resolution on globalization versus populism. And definitely, I think this crisis of identity I alluded to is is going to be uh, there in the coming years. I think the turning point will perhaps only come when we when we're creative, when more citizens are activists about tackling some of these issues. Um, again, you know, maybe youth can lead a campaign to re-engage with what our global values are. Uh, that creates a counter-narrative to extremism. Or maybe we can leverage tech in a way that can help deliver public goods. I mean, there's a growing gov tech sector um, that's uh, that already has uh, taken shape, and some governments are jumping on that bandwagon and thinking of how they can produce or be more effective in governance by leveraging tech. So I think we're moving in the right direction, but... Uh, it will be very difficult for the next few years because we'll just be all of us will just be debating the same issues. 
but I would just love that more individuals are more aware of the fact that this is a very significant turning point in our history. And a lot of the changes we see have been facilitated or exacerbated by tech. Uh, so it's important they're aware of this and that they do more to discuss these issues and consider what do they want their future to be. How can we leverage tech to shape the future or to, uh, you know, simply to uh, to be more engaged with, with what's happening and to put aside our emotions. There's too much emotional response to President Trump and Brexit, and uh, it's time to think of what the average person can do beyond just being informed. How What role can you play in the future world order? Yes, it's very true. Only question is left. Do we need leaders to to to... to create this movement, right. or it can be done leaderless, like say what happened sure. in Egypt. Right. There was no specific leader right. that actually went to Tahrir Square mm. and have that kind of demonstration. Exactly. So this is an issue to be, to be um, carefully reviewed and see. Mm. But I agree with you, we need a new movement Definitely. to tackle all these horrifying uh, phenomena unfolding in front of our eyes. And uh, you got a big job ahead of yeah. you, so you better start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ma. Thank you, I appreciate your time so much. This was wonderful. No, it's my pleasure. You're terrific. I appreciate that. Just, <laughs> just as much, if not more. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.